Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Anthony Garcia. Anthony is a writer, storyteller, and public speaker, and he explores the seemingly ordinary, otherwise mundane, and occasionally maddening elements of everyday life, helping people see where the gold is. He's also the host of the Attention Collection podcast, and I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Anthony, welcome to the Open Div Summit. Really glad to have you. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. For folks who might be less familiar with your work, maybe just to start, could you give a little bit of an overview of the Attention Collection and... uh, what you guys are doing to help people take control over their formation uh, through the art of attention. Yeah. Yeah. So a while back, I read this book by David Dark called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And like the second chapter in, he unpacks this idea that everyone has an attention collection. It's this, you know, collection of Everything that you've gathered over the years, whether it's something you've read in a book, something that you grew up watching, eavesdroppings, random conversations, your upbringing, your religious traditions, all of that stuff essentially goes into the hopper that becomes you. And so everyone has an attention collection. And it's very interesting to me that we all have similar paths and we all intersect in many different ways. But when it goes into our individual collective experience, when it, when it goes into who we are as individuals, things transform. And this is kind of like a, a form of alchemy, and which is something that I like to talk about quite a bit. But we're being shaped. You know, we are always at all times being shaped. We're never not being shaped by the inputs that are around us. And there are threads that connect us and tie us together. There are notable differences that we have to explore. But I am formed sitting in a church pew just as much as I'm formed sitting in front of a a show on Netflix. And so we like to explore what it looks like to be awake to that formation. Instead of it just happening to us, it's, it's happening with us. And we have some agency in the process. And so everything we do and talk about is kind of around that idea. We're always being shaped. And I like to say, we don't become ourselves by ourselves, right? We are individuals. We have our own unique expressions, but I didn't become who I am today on my own. Like, I like to ask this question, like, how old were you when you taught yourself to read? You know, and somebody usually stops and they're like, oh, but the answer is, you didn't teach yourself how to read. You didn't teach yourself how to tie your shoes. Whether you've had trauma, whether you've had dark experiences, whether your childhood was amazing or it was tragic, someone along the way, a group of someones has helped us in so many different ways. Whether we know that person, it's a family member, it's a teacher, could be a complete stranger. But as individual and beautiful and unique as we all are, other people had a hand in that formation people that we know interact with face-to-face or books I've picked up off a shelf. It all kind of goes into the soup of who we are and also who we're becoming. And so the attention collection spends a lot of time asking the question, who, who are you becoming? And, and what role do you have to play in working with all these different ingredients that are placed in front of you? So that's, that's kind of the big idea behind what we talk about. Yeah, and, and you've had a kind of an interesting path towards towards you know, starting this podcast and really finding this this kind of calling. Yeah, can you tell a little bit just about how you got here and what are some of the influences that have kind of 
before some of your personal attention? Yeah, so I grew up going to evangelical churches, different kinds of churches, what you might call fundamentalist for the most part of my childhood. And, you know, throughout my youth and then adult years in different kinds of churches. And so when the church doors were open, my family was there. You know, if it was a week long, quote, revival service, we were there every night, Sunday mornings, um, Wednesday evenings, whenever the church doors were open, we were there. And it's Christian church. And so I remember being thrown up on the, the stage at church at probably 10 years old to play the drums for the first time. And I think I spoke in front of a congregation for the first time when I was 11 or 12. I think I delivered my first, quote, sermon to a group of adults by the time I was 13. And it was because I grew up in a, a small church. And one of the benefits of that is the tight-knit community. And a lot of times, they celebrate everybody's involvement, right? There's not so many people to keep track of. And so I was given so many different opportunities so to sing and, and lead and teach and, you know, give sermons. And there's a lot that I look back on from those days, especially as it relates to fundamentalism, that have a dark cloud over them, to be perfectly honest. But there's also, it's a mixed bag, right? There are things that I look back on as amazing opportunities. And part of who I am today is, if, if I look back, it's been greatly shaped by those experiences and opportunities. And I started kind of officially leading students when I was still a teenager. When I was 16, 17, I became part of a, a youth committee that oversaw the student department and then became eventually the youth pastor and, and moved up from there and um, just participated in various churches and kind of church gatherings of multiple churches getting together for different conferences and things like that. And so that's kind of been my whole experience growing up. But as it generally happens, or as it happens often, I started in the middle of this fundamentalist, you know, teaching of this is the way to connect with, quote, God. And this is what it looks like. And these people are in and these people are out. One of the things that I'm grateful for is that I've always been interested in questions and I've always read. And so I started reading books on the shelf that would have been deemed you know, the do not touch shelf. Don't get to these books. These are not sanctioned. These books are going to get you into trouble. I found myself gravitating toward that shelf. And so I started first reading Christian books just outside of my Christian bubble. And then as somebody who's just always been curious, growing from there outward, and, you know, now as it stands, I'm someone who's been shaped by Christian theology I've been shaped by the Jewish tradition. I've been shaped by Buddhist philosophy. I've been, I've been shaped by Stoicism and Native American spirituality. There are so many different things that I've drawn from. And if you're able to step out from one stream long enough, you begin to see how similar so many of these things are. Now, there are incredible differences, and, and that's the reason for a lot of the conflict that we see. But if you can remove yourself enough and open up yourself enough, you realize, man, the best part of all these traditions, at their best, at their most loving, at their most accepting, as their most welcoming, they are saying essentially the same thing. And so just as I talked you know, a few minutes ago about the attention collection, that we're formed by all these different inputs, the same is true for what we might call religious formation. One of the other things that I gained from that book 
um, David Dark's book, is this idea that we're all religious, whether we claim a spirituality or a tradition or not. Capitalism is a religion because religion at the end of the day is just the controlling narrative. It's the story, it's the story by which individual or a collective lives. It's the one that leads us. It's the one that shapes us. And so in a sense, we're all religious. And so I no longer push that label aside. It's more of a, is this religion helpful? Are these religious practices healthy or are, are they detrimental to myself and to those around me? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Such an interesting, such an interesting take. And also such a, I resonate a lot with that path. You know, I think that many people, myself included, who I've seen who are really interested in what does it mean to make meaning and to create new structures of spirituality in this age are folks, um, myself included, who have kind of had experiences in very strict or let's say fundamentalist religious environments and you know, have, have experienced the, the good parts of really strong community and really maybe peak experiences and also gone through this kind of like personal journey of leaving that, which is many times is very painful. And I'm curious, maybe for you, what was helpful for you as you were kind of going through that process of moving towards, you know, this multi-stream kind of spirituality? And um, do you feel like you've found kind of ways to meet those needs now in in your current kind of life in between? Yeah, I remember kind of at my, still within kind of the fundamentalist tradition in terms of where I attended on Sunday mornings, but I remember deciding at the beginning of a year, several years back, that I was going to start reading the Bible every morning and I was going to start journaling. And I started at the beginning and I started working my way through. Now, I I used to be what was called a Bible quizzer, where we would challenge other groups and we would memorize tons of Bible verses and we would quiz each other. And it was like a buzzer system, like we were on Jeopardy. Like I was on that level of reading the Bible But when you're in the thick of that, there's questions that you just don't ask, right? And so I was sitting there and I was reading and I bumped into Exodus and I bumped into this passage about essentially God sanctioning slavery and that you are allowed to beat said slave because that slave is your quote property, just not until the point of death. And I remember pushing the Bible away from me. And I remember pushing the notepad that I was taking notes as, as they came into my mind away and having this instant, immediate crisis. And I knew in that moment that what I had just read, I didn't take out of context. I wasn't confused about it. It was very clearly written here. And if this is true, and if this book, this collection of books is in fact divinely inspired and inerrant and problem-free, I would not be able to traffic in it anymore. I will not be able to read it. I will not be able to live my life according to it. And that was an immediate crisis because it meant this community that I had been a part of for most of my life could be completely removed from my life. And what did it mean for my then very small children? What did it mean for my relationships? What did it mean for all these these friendships and, and you know familial connections that I had made over the years. And then in that moment, what helped me 
were finding people within the Christian tradition who read these things differently. I, I remember reading things from people like Pete Enns and, and different theologians and Bible scholars within the Christian tradition. And they helped, in a sense, build a bridge that maybe there's another way to think, that maybe you don't have to believe in inerrancy, that there's no problems and contradictions in the scriptures. And that was the mini bridge I needed at that time to get my feet under me to continue along whatever path I was on. And then as that kind of, that path started to widen a little bit and I started to keep taking baby steps along that path, that's when, when, once you start opening your mind and once you start seeing that maybe there's other rooms in this house that I've never explored, then you're free to question the house all across the board. And, you, and then all of a sudden you start peeking out the windows and you start taking a look at the neighborhood and you start going, well, maybe those neighbors aren't off limits. Maybe they aren't as bad as I heard they were. And that's when you start bumping into other streams of thought and other traditions and other belief systems. And once you open that door, it can be jarring. You know, it can completely topple what people would call faith. And I think that's a series, I don't think that's a one-time event. I think we always have these disorienting experiences along the way where it feels like everything's getting ready to crash and burn. And then you look up and you get to survive another day. And then you start to cobble together some of the stuff. And sometimes you take a few walls down. Sometimes you have to move a staircase. Sometimes, in some cases, you actually do have to knock the whole house to the ground and start over. But it was baby steps for me. It was moments of crisis, moments of mini terror and panic. It was maybe I can't have this conversation with people right now until I sort it out. And then it was just kind of slowly reading and learning at the feet of other people in my tradition at the time and then in other traditions and realizing it's going to be okay. People have been asking these questions for as long as there have been questions. And you're not going to get all the answers to them, but you'll know you're not alone. And sometimes that's enough. And it certainly has been for me. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm curious, you know, I think so many people or perhaps maybe so many non-religious people think about religion as primarily belief, but there is so much more to the religious experience, the community, the ritual. And you know, I'm curious, you know, Attention Collection now is a podcast which engages in these questions of meaning, making, and becoming. But, you know, what what is the vision for? for is there kind of a sense of, really trying to create almost a mini, you know, community, a community around these ideas around becoming. Yeah. yeah. So right before this global pandemic really reared its ugly head, you know, we had been talking about what does this look like off of the podcast? What does this look like in person? What does this look like as a community? Because as I said, we, we fully believe that we don't become ourselves by ourselves, right? We have blind spots. There are things that we don't recognize. There are things that we don't understand. And we need to bump into other people. And we need to learn these things. And one of the things that we started to kind of talk about in terms of what could it look like to have a different kind of community, the thing that becomes immediately important is this. It, it can't be a group of people who believe and think the exact same thing. That's an easy way to have community. It's an effective way to have community, but it's not realistic and it's not ultimately healthy because once you start to grow and shift and evolve in certain ways, you find yourself alienated. And I think that's where so many people are right now. So it becomes more about how can we be a like-hearted community of people, not necessarily like-minded in every single 
belief system or every value aligns necessarily. There have to be some core components. There have to be some tenets that keep everybody in the same book, at least, if not always on the same page. But it has to be able to be a community of people that come from different spiritual traditions or, quote, non-spiritual traditions who can be comfortable in the same, you know, literal or digital spaces. And so we've been trying to figure out how to do this. And then this pandemic hits, right? And so what does that look like? Do we just pivot? Do we just wait? And one of the things that we started doing is we've been holding these things on Zoom, um, these little Zoom casts. And we've got people, you know, there's small groups at this point, but, you know, people from around the world who are getting together and there's different people sharing thoughts, different topics. We will take a theme and let different people unpack it. But the last one we did, there were different presenters giving big ideas around the stories that shape us, the stories that form us. You know, we have resolutions, we have things that we want to do, goals that we set, but ultimately we're formed by stories, the stories that we hear, the stories that we tell ourselves. And so it was all around telling a better story. And so different people presented and then we opened it up for different conversations, Q&A, different people gave their opinions on the topics. And then probably the most beautiful experience within that event was when one of our friends closed the event out with just five-minute mindfulness practice of breathing, walking us through just presence of mind and awareness. And so, you know, as I grew up, you know, you would open a quote church service with prayer. There would be different kinds of music. You might close the thing with prayer. There, there was no quote religious language in this event, but there are people sharing their hearts. There are people with tears in their eyes talking about these things. There were people, you know, we had this moment of silence where everybody's got their hand, you know, on their, their chest and on their stomach and they're, they're breeze, breathing and they're thinking about the present moment. And it was just then this question of, now, how do you feel right now? What's coming up? And then on Zoom, people around the world sharing whether in the chat or, you know, turning on their microphone and just sharing what it is that they're feeling and, and how that helped them and shaped them. And so you, you could call that, you know, a moment of spiritual connection, but you don't have to put that language to it. And so it's, for me at this point, it's experimental. What does it look like to serve people from different traditions with different views coming in probably a little nervous, probably a little anxious because we don't quite know what's going to happen or how it's going to move people. But I think that's the key. I think creating communities that aren't based around one person or one idea that are truly egalitarian, truly welcoming and affirming to all, not only you know gender identity and sexuality, but faith tradition or or no faith tradition whatsoever. And the other kinds of community on some level are easy. If you check these boxes, if you believe these things, if you affirm these values, you're in. You're golden. You're welcome here. The challenge becomes when you you just don't put the boxes there for people to check. Maybe maybe the boxes are decency fairness, generosity, when someone else is sharing, you quiet down, you know, whatever it might be. But I think 
this is a different kind of community. And so we're experimenting with that. And one of the things that we're going to do is every last Saturday of the month for now, we're doing these Zoom events and whoever's there is there and it's free to the to whoever wants to join. And it's just an opportunity for one or a few people to share and then see where the conversations go, probably do some mindfulness practice, some reflection, and and just kind of see how that builds. It feels very experimental, which is exciting. Very cool. Very cool. And and I, I think one of the things you touched on, this idea of, you know, it's easy to create community when there are these shared beliefs, these boxes to tick, but and then kind of interfaith or no faith you know, container, what does it mean for someone to belong? What are people saying yes to? I think that's like a really interesting and challenging question for those of us who are really trying to create meaning and or create these containers to explore. You know, one of the, there's this uh, church in, in Tampa, Florida called the Underground, which talks about this idea of like the ecclesial minimum, or as I like to think about it, like the minimum viable church. And right. they, um, they basically, create, they're kind of like a micro church planting network of kind of like non-traditional churches. So they've got, you know, they'll, help people start like beer and Bible, you know, kind of like Bible studies at a microbrew or, um, you know, a bike shop that is kind of, you know, providing bikes, using the province to provide bikes to the homeless who don't have transportation and who, who might, you know, with transportation might be able to get a job um, and kind of get back on their feet. And, and for them, they have this like three-part definition of like, okay, if it has these three things, it's a church. And their three things are, it's, it's gospel related. It's kind of like a, uh, you know, it's the, it's a group of people who are, who are trying to embody and live the gospel. There's a sense of community. It's not just something that's happening alone, but people are coming together. And there's a sense of mission. And, um, you know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about for kind of like some of the contingents I've been creating is like, what does it mean to create? Like what, like community is easy. Mission is easy in a kind of, or it can be easy in an interface setting. But what is the gospel, right? How do you kind of, like, what is the kind of you know, interfaith or secular equivalent of that? And maybe it is, as you're saying, you know, values. But yeah, I'm curious if you have, if you have any thoughts on like what, what really can kind of like hold folks together. Or maybe it's just the shared yearning. I don't know. I think, I think you really touched on something here, which is probably the biggest question. Because gospel, obviously different people are going to bring different definitions to it. But, you know, at its essence is the good news. But this begs the question that I think we're wrestling with globally, definitely here in the States, we're wrestling with this on a political level, which again, as I said about religion, everything's religious. Well, everything's political. If it deals with, you know, groups of people, it's political. So the good news, well, what's good news for me might not be good news for you. So how do you find the collective good news for a diverse group of people? I think that's the, the, the point that we have to really dive into and dig into and, and explore. And I think people have to be willing to acknowledge that it's going to be clunky, that we're going to get it wrong, that there's going to be objections, both for people who are saying, this is wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, and people who are saying, hey, you're not, you're not quite including as many people as you think you're including. And we have to get comfortable with the discomfort of that experience where it's trial and error. And I think what makes that trial and error okay is the intent behind it. Here is what we currently think. Not what, and I think this is another important thing, not what I, the one figurehead of X movement, I think that's toxic. I think we've seen that too many times. But here's what we, this ever-evolving, open, inclusive community of people are exploring as good news. 
if it's if we're missing something, if we're not including as many people as we think we're including, please let us know. And then it becomes the the movement or the mission or the group's responsibility to really be open to what that feedback is. Because I think, you know, we see successful communities and, and we mark these as successful based on numbers, based on turnout, based on, you know, funds raised or, you know, group size, whatever. But success needs to be measured differently because there's been too many in, you know, in the Christian church world, there's been too many mega churches that have thousands of people and millions of dollars that the watching world would not consider a a success because they're excluding people, they're hurting people. You know, I think that's been written very large during this pandemic of what it looks like to show up lovingly for your neighbor as a, as a community. And so we have to be willing to not get bogged into the status quo. Once, once a movement starts and it gains traction and it gets people and it starts to feel good, there's always going to be a danger of thinking you've figured out the formula You've figured out the solution. Everything is solved. And then you start to try to protect that formula, that system. And this is probably when communities start to die. It might take a decade. It might take six months. But that is the day whatever community it is starts to die. Because once something seems to work, it's just human nature to step in to try to protect that. But because our society is ever evolving and because we're being awakened to so many different things, we have to constantly be open to adapt. And I think in order to be able to do that, we have to constantly invite more people to show up and challenge. Have you thought about this? Have you considered this? What are we doing here? We need to rethink what's happening over here. Here's how it's helping these people, and here's how it's marginalizing these people. Here's how it feels right for this group, but it doesn't feel right for this group. And that, we don't see too many of those communities because those are harder to sustain because there's no comfort level that you tap into. It's something that you have to constantly be wrestling with, so... Right, right. Well, and I think it's so interesting, right? Because I think there's definitely, you know, I think we've seen, and I think in, in particular in America, we're, we're coming to this reckoning of seeing how even implicit exclusivity, unintentional exclusivity can be so damaging on a societal level. And I think one of the questions I've been personally sitting with a lot is this question of like, is it really possible to be like, to, to kind of create something without, you know, in some way not excluding some amount of people or, or, or thinking of one particular type of person, you know, as a, as a kind of, you know, as, as a member. And just, just for kind of like context, you know, earlier this year, a group of us kind of have experimented with a similar type of container where we kind of have brought folks together to explore kind of life's big questions and meaning and in some sense the sacred. And what's really fascinating is, you know, we kind of opted for secular language as a way to, you know, really try and be accessible to folks who may not be touching normal religion. And after, you know, kind of a couple months of, of this group that was meeting weekly, one of the members voiced that like, you know, actually their personal spiritual path is taking them more towards a more theistic, you know, exploration. And even though they know they can talk about like maybe theistic spiritual growth in the group, 
the group is is for the most part, I would say, you know, a group of folks who probably identify as secular and for whom there's not the same level of maybe kind of feedback, yes ending of momentum they would gather in a group of people who are explicitly exploring spirituality through like a theistic lens. And even though like there's there's this kind of mutual respect, you know, I think the, this, this friend of mine is just realizing that like actually what they might be looking for is an explicitly more theistic group, which would also not resonate with most of the people in the group who are, you know, maybe still kind of processing the trauma they have around, you know, what theism or, or God kind of has meant for them in their life in the past. And, and maybe like, you know, what groups aligned with that have kind of done uh, in their life. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just this, this interesting question of like, you know, I think even wherever we draw the line in the sand of what we think is important, there's going to be people who for some reason or another don't resonate. Um, and maybe it's maybe it's about kind of not othering those folks, but I'm curious, yeah, what your thoughts might be. Yeah, I think it brings to question how we measure the success of a community. I think traditionally we've thought about success in terms of how many people, you know, there's, you know, all around the world, people are joining this community and its mission and it's here's who we've added to the ranks. And I'm, I'm not criticizing that, you know, necessarily, but when you measure success in those terms, yes, when somebody needs to go to a different group, needs to join a different community, or that community ceases to serve them in the way that maybe it once did, it feels like a loss. And so I think one of the reasons we measure success that way is because a lot of these communities become financially invested. They become, it becomes more than just an emotional investment. It becomes, this is my livelihood, or this is, I've staked certain levels of my own personal fulfillment in in the success of this group. And my measurement of success isn't being served right now, or it seems like we're losing ground, quote unquote, and therefore it's going south. I think we would probably, along with, you know, evolving community, we'd have to evolve our understanding of what success looks like in this community. And, and it would be, a, hey, we are celebrating the fact that you are moving into something that makes more sense to you. Because maybe being a part of this group helped you find what it is that you were actually looking for. That's not a loss unless you frame it as such. That's a win because this person sat with somebody who, a group of people who accepted them, loved them, and in their own journey, they began to see, well, maybe this would better serve me. Maybe I could connect and plug in more with this kind of tradition. And therefore, it's time for me to move along. And maybe they wouldn't have found that had they not connected to this particular community. And so it's hard to do that because then what does it look like to measure success? What are the parameters? How is it gauged? And, and I think that's all up for debate. And I think each community that kind of tr tries to take this non-traditional path is going to have to wrestle with those. And the answer is going to be different each time, I would imagine. Totally, totally. And I mean, I, mean, I think what you're describing is like largely, I think the path that you know, the group has taken and you know, it's very encouraging to folks. I think it's really just this question of like, you know, even as we're, you know, it seems like both of us are really thinking about what does it mean to create containers of meaning for folks who are, are maybe not finding that in the traditional spaces. You know, there's not just like one type of person, right? There's so many different types of people. And it's like, just as there's so many different flavors of church and temple and synagogue, and even within the tradition, 
it seems like you know within the kind of this, this new fuzzy foggy realm there's gonna need to be just as many varieties of expression of of kind of you know containers of formation to help folks and deepen in these ways and, and not only to find like to create these like bridging spaces where we have folks who are non-religious and we have ex-evangelicals and we have you know the kind of secular buddhists who also are exploring christian mysticism but you know spaces where each of those folks maybe find their own people exploring uh, a similar kind of a non-traditional path as well and uh and can kind of like you know deepen together yeah and i think you know one of the other questions that c- connects with this is the question of leadership you know obviously it doesn't need to be a figurehead. And I would strongly push against this idea that it's one or two people at the quote top of something leading. I think it would need to be more of a community of leaders, everybody empowered. But then again, you have to have people who are gifted in certain levels of organization to keep things going or else it just becomes so confusing that yes, it's loving. Yes, it's it's wonderful. Yes, it's exciting. But what in the world are we doing? So on some level, you need those leaders who are going to step up. But this is where I think in order to have a community like this, that's actually healthy long-term is that maybe it looks like they're not tying their entire financial well-being to a community because that's when you start to water things down. That's when you become invested in the status quo. That's when social issues arise and you decide maybe I shouldn't talk about these social issues because it might hurt the quote base and it might offend the wrong people. And so, yes, if somebody's giving all of their time to a community and how could they serve elsewhere to, to you know, make money to survive or whatever, that becomes the question. But I think you talked about the underground. And if I'm familiar with them, I think a lot of the people who lead those, they are working different kinds of jobs or they have, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors or they're getting money elsewhere so that they're their interest and what they bring to this community isn't, well, this is my job, so I have to be here and we have to keep things as such. And I think exploring what it looks like to be a leader in these kind of communities is important because I've seen too many times people know they should act on certain things, know they should speak up about certain things, know that certain things need to change, but can't seem to do so because I don't want to rock the boat too much to put myself in jeopardy. And I think some people do this in a very manipulative way, but some people are just genuinely trying to survive and don't know how to navigate those waters. So what if right from the beginning, it was set up in a different way so that that's not how things go down, so that you're not so tied to it financially or whatever it might be, that you're not willing to adapt or change or shift when shifts needs to happen. Right, right. I mean, it almost seems like some of the the challenge of, um, you know, existing, maybe some of these more, uh, I guess, fundamentalist institutions, some of the challenge of moving into the modern, or moving more liberally with some of the social policies, is that it's, uh, you know, it would threaten their economic base, right? It's, It's almost a question of like, their business model is based on, in some ways, you know, catering to a certain clientele with certain biases. And, uh, and maybe that's actually an oversimplification and doesn't do enough credit to the, the people who are maybe affiliating and, and all that and the diversity of belief and, and, and maybe there. But yeah, it becomes hard to think like, like I, I don't know if you're familiar at all. I think his name is Carlton Peterson, who was a, who was a Baptist minister 
in Tulsa and uh, came out and saying that he no longer believed that he believed in universal salvation and not just, you know, that you, you had to kind of explicitly convert to, to avoid uh, eternal damnation. And, uh, you know, he basically went from, you know, mega church pastor with a gun and then to, to pretty immediately, pretty shortly kind of basically booted from the church and um, eventually, you know, kind of uh, condemned by the League of Bishops and had to, you know, had to basically, you know, I think they, they tried to create their own kind of uh, more liberal community, but but it definitely was hard, and a lot of the resources stayed in the more traditional traditional stream. Yeah, to give to to touch on what you just said about giving credit to people who are trying, and it's it's harder than it seems on the surface. I actually remember Carlton Pearson growing up in church. I, we used to sing some of his songs, and I remember when his first book came out about questioning hell and this eternal damnation idea and then would a loving God participate in that sort of thing. And I remember myself feeling like, oh, here's another guy who went off the deep end. How tragic, how sad. And then I also remember several years later, me completely changing the way I looked at Carlton Pearson. Here's a guy who went first Here's a guy who put his neck out on the chopping block and people brought out the swords. They just did. And he's not the public force that he used to be. He used to be very influential in, in mega churches all across the country. And he was just pushed into a corner. He was forgotten. He was maligned. I mean, all every possible thing that could have happened to him in the negative absolutely did. But he was a pioneer and so many people that have come after him that have asked the very same questions he was asking haven't been given the same treatment that he did, unfortunately, but he went first. And so I remember both seeing him initially and thinking, wow, how sad. And then I remember years later coming back around and thinking, how amazing, how wonderful that he pushed against knowing what he was risking, knowing what he was getting ready to sacrifice, but he couldn't let it go. And so he went first. And so many people have reaped the benefits of his sacrifice. But that too often doesn't happen because I'm going to lose the congregation. I'm going to lose respect. People in my community aren't going to like me. They're going to keep their children away from me. They're going, I'm going to be completely talked about in such a negative way. It's going to impact. And it also needs to be said, a lot of these church leaders aren't just protecting their salaries. They're thinking about the, the other people on staff, the other people they employ, the building that has to be paid for. And when you're so tied to these institutions in that way, it becomes very hard to push towards positive, important change. Wow. Well, I think, Anthony, that, that seems like a great place to end it. Such an interesting kind of set of dynamics. And also just, you know, seeing that some people are kind of uh, taking these acts of courage and, and moving into what they believe, even if it means potential consequences. I think Carlton is definitely like a bright light in that respect and super, super cool to kind of, you know, to hear your personal story of, of watching that, that transition. Before, before we, we jump, for folks who want to find out more about you, the work you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah, so the Attention Collection on Instagram, on Facebook, you can listen to the Attention Collection podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. My account Anthony Garcia on Instagram. I also write a, a daily newsletter called How You See It, just about 
when we look at the way we view the world, just by the shift of our perspective, it opens up in so many different ways. And so I show up there every day writing something. It's a free newsletter I put out. So if you want to, if that sounds interesting to you, feel free to jump on that. But yeah, um, that's where we're experimenting right now. And that'll shift and change as kind of this pandemic calms down and we eventually are able to get back into face-to-face community. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cool. Well, thanks, Anthony, so much. Really, really been a great, uh, great time having you here. It's an honor. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.